Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half assed history. This week, going to continue having a chat about the Carthaginian general Hannibal Barker. Last week, we covered off uh, his early career in Iberia and uh, how, after finishing his father's work, bringing the peninsula under Carthaginian control, he set off to stage a land invasion of Rome via the Alps. Now, you, you, you'll probably have to listen to last week's episode to get all the details about him crossing the Alps, and you probably should because otherwise, you know, might not be across a a lot of what's in this week's episode. So if, if you need to do it now, that's fine. Just go ahead. I'll I'll wait. I'll be here when you get back. Right now, so all the blow-ins are gone. I can talk to the real half-assed history fans, my favourite kind, the people who have been uh, been with me forever here. Honestly, I, honestly I, don't, I don't even know who these new listeners think they are, walking in like they bloody own the place, to be honest. I mean, oh, 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 um, sorry, they're back. Hi. <laughs> Hi, yeah, no, welcome back. No, 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 you didn't, uh, no, nah, didn't miss anything. No, don't, don't worry about it. Just uh, chatting about... Uh, just having uh, look. Oh no, it doesn't matter. Let's just let's just crack on, shall we? Um. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so we left Hannibal last week after having come down from the Alps with his exhausted troops, arriving in Roman-controlled territory that was occupied. You remember by the Padan Gauls, who didn't like the Romans all that much. So as a result, the initial stages of Hannibal's arrival on the Italian peninsula aren't so much an invasion than a liberation. These Padan Gauls flock to his side. They put up the soldiers and they helped them all to get some rest, recovering after their long ordeal, marching to and then crossing the Alps. The Romans, meanwhile, they're running around like headless chickens. Hannibal has completely bamboozled them here and they don't know what to do with themselves. Firstly, they didn't even have a chance to defend the Po Valley as the people there defected to Hannibal straight away and offered no resistance. And second, right... The Romans were hoping to keep the fight out of Roman territory, you know, for as long as possible. They really didn't want to have to fight them on on the home ground there. Uh, They wanted to fight them as as far away from Rome as possible. Hannibal has already gone and stuffed that up for them because they'd they'd been getting troops ready to fight the Carthaginians in Iberia and were completely wrong-footed now that they had to fight, uh, fight at home. However... A bloke named Publius Cornelius Scipio, right? He leaps into action. He rises to the occasion, and he he gets ready to deal with this uh, this this whole whole issue. This fellow, he was in charge of the Roman troops who were supposed to be sent over to Iberia to fight Hannibal there, but he pivots masterfully and he diverts these troops from Massilia, which is modern day Marseille, where they were supposed to go into Iberia instead to the Po Valley after hearing that Hannibal was there. Now Publius, he is baffled by the news that that Hannibal has crossed the Alps. He can't believe that Hannibal has got there so quickly, but he does doesn't muck around and he marches up the Po River looking for him. Now, once Publius finds Hannibal, Hannibal is baffled too. He can't believe that Publius has managed to get his troops over from Massilia so quickly. So everyone really is in a bit of a state of shock, but no one more than the people of Rome and the Senate back back in, in the city of Rome itself. They are tearing their hair out about Hannibal. And now Publius has already gone off on his own. He's fighting him up north and, and it's all happening so bloody quickly they don't have a chance to respond. In any case, Publius, he brings the fight to Hannibal. By this stage, it's late November. And at this stage, the Carthaginian army has had time to rest and recover and regroup. And and, and a small battle takes place, the Battle of Ticinius. Uh, this is just a warm up for Hannibal, really. He fends off Publius and his army without even breaking a sweat. Uh, Publius, on the other hand, breaks a little bit more than a sweat. Uh, he's very, very badly injured during the fighting, and he only survives after his young son, who is also rather confusingly named Publius Cornelius Scipio, uh, charges in on his horse and rescues him. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about Scipio at uh, Scipio the Younger, this is, who then went on to be called Scipio the Elder. Very, very confusing. 
the moral of the story, give your kids different names, the ones that you have, if you want to make them, make it easy for historians to identify him. But uh, this young Scipio, he's 18 years of age at this stage, uh, he became later known as Scipio Africanus. And uh, he, along with Hannibal, is, is now considered one of the greatest military commanders of all time. And we'll chat about a bit about him a bit later on in this episode as well. We're away off from that yet, because right now in 218 BCE, young Scipio is dragging his poor old dad off the battlefield as the Romans turn tail and the day belongs to the Carthaginians. This victory... Again, relatively small one in military terms, but enormous in practical terms. It convinced even more of the local Gallic tribes in the northern, in the north of the Italian peninsula to throw in with Hannibal. This means that his army swelled in numbers. Tens of thousands of new troops. Bloody brilliant. Hannibal can't believe his luck. But Rome didn't sit on its hands. They sent another army very quickly, led this time by Tiberius Sempronius Longus, up to reforce Publius, who was camped near the Trebia River. Now, Hannibal, he's off capturing Roman towns for supplies at this stage, but he knows that he's going to have to fight the Romans eventually. He heads off Sempronius. He avoids fighting with them because he he judges the the situation to not be favourable enough for him there yet. And he allows Sempronius to actually uh, arrive and and, and reinforce Publius's army here. But this is fine. Hannibal's fine with this because he's he's already cooking up a plan. His spies tell him of these reinforcements and uh, Hannibal, he heads off to the Trebia River. Uh, which is nearby, and he gets ready for battle. By now, it's December, and it is freezing cold. Hannibal ensures that his troops are well-fed and that they stay very warm. And after spotting the Romans who march up towards where the uh, the Carthaginians are camped, and they, the Romans, they themselves set up camp on the, side, the other side of the Trebi River, he sets up shop and he figures out his plan. He sends a bunch of cavalry and infantry into hiding, into some overgrown thickets that are near the river, uh, so as to ambush the Romans once the, the battle actually begins. And early the next morning, he sends out a big stack of cavalry to the Roman camp to provoke the Romans into attacking, which, incredibly stupidly, they do. This bloke, Tiberius Lempronius Longus, he seems like a bit of a goose, to be honest, because despite Publius telling him not to play into Hannibal's hands, Sempronius completely ignores him and mobilises the troops after Hannibal has sent out this skirmishing party. The Roman troops, by the way, very early in the morning, freezing cold, haven't had anything to eat because it was so early. Hannibal, on the other hand, because he knows what he's doing, he's he's got all his troops up, warmed them up, filled their bellies. And while the cavalry was sent out, he was getting them ready for this battle that he was hoping was going to happen. So you can see Hannibal deftly manoeuvring so his opponent would play right into his hand. And that's exactly what Sempronius does. The Romans march up across the river and Hannibal is ready for them. He uses his cavalry to harass the Roman Velites, the lightly armoured troops with javelins. um, And the Velites waste all of their javelins, fruitlessly chucking them about at the cavalry and not really doing any damage at all, really. Sempronius then orders them to withdraw. This was, this was pretty typical. They then withdraw and uh, instead, instead sends in the heavy, heavy infantry there to, uh, uh, to, to tussle with uh, you know, the, the bulk of, of Hannibal's army. And Hannibal then sends in his cavalry and his, his elephants to meet the, this heavy infantry, which is you know, pretty standard at this stage. But after the Velites have withdrawn from the rear, right, they're, they're back on the, on the banks of the river. The troops that Hannibal has placed in ambush charge out of hiding, out of this, out of the brush, the forest, the, the undergrowth that they'd been in there, and mowed them down while they were just standing around doing nothing by the ba- on the banks of the river. Spurred on by this, Hannibal's army is able to overcome the better trained and better equipped Roman infantry who, unlike the Carthaginians, are suffering from cold, from fatigue, and from hunger. Essentially, Hannibal fought the battle so completely on his own terms and as a result absolutely crushed the Romans at Trebia. Sempronius made three critical mistakes, as they were pointed out here by Sir Walter Raleigh in his book, The History of the World. That his, that's history spelled with a, with a very jolly I-E at the end, which I quite like. One, number one, 
He fought with inferior cavalry against the elephants, right? So he, he sent in horses and he sent in lighter cavalry against extremely heavy cavalry in the form of, uh, of these elephants and the Numidian heavy cavalry that, uh, that, that Hannibal had with him. Second, he didn't scout out the area surrounding the battlefield and uncover the, this ambush. If he'd sent out scouts and troops to figure out what was going on, he would have found these, you know, several thousand troops hidden in, in the nearby forest, right? And number three, he marched his army through a freezing cold river just before the battle, which had a them entire, they're all numb, they can hardly hold their weapons, having a terrible time, and uh, as a result, Hannibal has the upper hand on, on basically every conceivable metric. So, once again, the day belongs to the Carthaginians, the day belongs to Hannibal. He'd lost about four or 5,000 troops, whereas the Romans lost about 30,000. It was a decisive victory, and it sent the already panicked Romans back home with their tails between their legs. Now, after this, we're well into winter, well, well into winter now. And Hannibal, he, he realises there's not, not too much more fighting to do until, until the spring comes. So he rests all of his troops with his Gallic allies, and he tries to figure out what his plan is was going to be into the next year. He decides that he wants to move further south towards Rome and continue to, you know, to try to embarrass them and to get, try to get other areas to rise up against Rome in rebellion after realising that the power of, 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 of Rome is, is, is not absolute. You know, that anyone can rise up and, and, and take the fight to the Romans without you know, fear of being crushed. So as a result of this, he marches south once spring arrives, having a, honestly a pretty terrible time doing so. The area that he's marching through, it's flooded and boggy, so his troops are bloody hating it as they're wet and cold and tired. And poor old Hannibal actually doesn't have it any easier than, than any of his troops. He gets conjunctivitis and he loses his right eye, the poor bastard, so he's not having a great time. But in any case, he arrives in Etruria, which is in modern-day central Italy, and he starts to make a fool of the next Roman general that was sent up to fight him, a, a bloke named Gaius Flaminius. Now, Hannibal is going around capturing and looting towns and making Flaminius seem un completely unable to defend the territory that he's been sent to protect. And this is exactly what Hannibal wants to do. He wants everyone who is under the thumb of the Romans to realise Romans aren't even that tough, not even that strong, not even looking after us. They can't stand up to us. If we rose up in rebellion, they wouldn't be able to fend us off either. So this is exactly what Hannibal wants to do. He wants to make Flaminius look like a bit of a turkey. Now, Flaminius... He has set up camp at a place called Aretium, and he is not budging. He is not making the mistake of playing into Hannibal's hands like this idiot Sempronius did. Unfortunately for, Herminia, uh, for Flaminius, uh, however, <laughs> this is also playing into Hannibal's hands. He turns this to his advantage as well. Hannibal really just is such a stone-cold master, stone-cold tactical genius, that he finds a way to turn, uh, to, to turn this situation to his advantage as well. He realises that Flaminius isn't going to move from his camp no matter what, and so he gives up all the raiding and the pillaging, and, uh, and instead he marches his army south around Flaminius's camp at Aretium, and he positions himself between Aretium and Rome. And this, again, might not sound like much, but it is the first ever, I'm talking in the entirety of human history, it is the first ever example of what a military would call a turning movement, putting your army in between in, in between an opposing army and their base of operations. It's the first time in history that anyone has ever done this, and it is another mark of Hannibal's military genius. Flaminius is now cut off from Rome, with supply lines and communication lines severed from the capital. Even better for Hannibal, he's not cut off from anything. He's a mobile army. He's living off the land without a fixed base of operations, and so he is laughing. Flaminius now has to do something. He forced, he, He's had his hand forced by what Hannibal has done here. If he waits, his defeat will be inevitable. He, he's been cut off from Rome. He can't survive without, without supply lines back to the capital. He's pretty pissed off. I have to tell you this. Flaminius is pretty pissed off at this stage, and he actually lets his temper get the better of him. 
He doesn't listen to any of his advisors who are saying he should just send out smaller cavalry contingent to harass the Carthaginians, do some scouting, figure out what's going on. But Flaminius says, no, bugger that. Let's move out and get these mongrels. We'll take the fight straight to him. Now, as you might expect, Hannibal turns this full-scale march of the Romans to his advantage on the, ba- on the banks of Lake Trasimene. Now, Hannibal, what he's doing is he's marching away from the Romans. He's, he's sort of feigning a withdrawal, or he's, he's not quite fleeing, but definitely moving away from where the Romans are, 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 you know, are coming up after him. They're chasing him down. Now, at Lake Trasimene here, the, the northern edge, the northern edge of this lake, it comes up against some heavily wooded hills. Uh, and there's a road that sort of threads its way along the bank between uh, these foothills that are covered, as I say, in, in, in very thick forest uh, and the banks of the lake. Now, Hannibal, he knows that these Romans are finally coming after him. He knows he's provoked them. They're chasing him down. So he sets up another staggeringly brilliant plan. You, you, this, is, this is quite, quite incredible. What he does as he hides almost his entire army in the wooded hills north of the lake. He posts a bunch of cavalry at the end where the Romans were marching from, on the western end of the road next to the lake, right? And then the rest of his army is all hidden away in the forest. He, he manages to hide tens of thousands of people in these forests, right? So the forests, full of this Carthaginian army, Iberian African infantry, Numidian cavalry, Gallic infantry, all on this raised well-hidden ground that's overlooking the lake. And as night falls, Hannibal then sends a, uh, sends a bunch of troops over to go and light campfires on the next hill over, away from where his army actually was, right? So the next hill over, he's got these blokes going over there and setting up all of these campfires spread out away from each other. So it looked like he had marched further than he had. It made it seem like the Romans at night that they were up on the next hill over and they had a, the Romans had a long way to go to try to catch up with them. As the morning comes, Flaminius, realising or thinking at least that the Romans, that the, the Carthaginians are so far away, he's marching his troops at top speed, as quick as they can go, to try to catch up with Hannibal. He doesn't think anything of it as he uh, starts to march between the lake and these and these forests. He's just trying to catch up with where he thinks Hannibal's troops are. Now Hannibal and all of his troops, they're waiting patiently, quiet as a a mouse there, and once the Roman troops have passed the cavalry that are waiting at the western end of the road, he blows the trumpets and so begins the biggest military ambush in history before or since. I'm not just talking about the time either. The Battle of Lake Trasimene is to this day still the largest ever ambush in history as Hannibal had hid an entire army, around 55,000 people. And as a result, he absolutely annihilated the Romans. The Romans, they were cut off at the rear because the cavalry came through and blocked their, their means of escape. At the front, they've got the bulk of the Carthaginian army. And from the flank, they're having tens of thousands of Carthaginians descending from the forest and driving them towards the bank of the lake. The Romans are taken completely by surprise. They can't get into formation. They can't fight effectively at all. And Hannibal's troops, not only do they have the higher ground, they have the element of surprise. They have everything. And the entire Roman army was wiped out. Of the 30,000 Roman troops, half were killed then and there, and the other half were captured either during the battle or in the time shortly afterwards as they timed, as they tried to flee. So once again, Hannibal had demonstrated his total, his complete mastery of the battlefield, pulling down the Romans' pants once again and delivering another overwhelming victory. The Battle of Lake Trasimene is still widely considered the greatest ambush in history and is yet another example of Hannibal's genius. However, as you might already know, the Battle of Lake Trasimene 
pales in comparison to the greatest battle that Hannibal ever fought. A battle that even today is still described as the greatest display of tactical military leadership in history. Its legacy echoes throughout the century, the millennia. In the First World War, the, G- the German Schlieffen Plan was heavily influenced by Hannibal's performance at Cannae, and even US General Norman Schwarzkopf said that he referred to the lessons of the Battle of Cannae during Operation Desert Storm in 1991. So in short, this battle is bloody important. So let's have a chat about how it actually came about. After Lake Trasimene, the Romans are thrown into a total panic. Hannibal has just annihilated the only standing army with any real hope of contesting him, and now they don't know what to do. They elect a dictator in the Roman Republic. A dictator was basically a bloke given far-reaching but time-limited powers, uh, whose name was Quintius Fabius Maximus Vericosus, right? And if you've ever heard of the Fabian strategy, where you fight a war of attrition rather than actually trying to fight real battles and wonder where the name came from, you're about to find out because it is old mate Fabius who decides that seeing seeing as as Rome doesn't have a chance, doesn't have the armies to stand up to Hannibal, he's instead going to try to wear him down and grind him out. This suits Hannibal down to the ground. He goes back to pillaging and raiding and having a great time. He realises, however, that he can't take the capital, the, the, the fight to the capital just yet. He can't try to capture Rome. He doesn't have any siege weapons and wouldn't be able to capture the city. So instead, he wheels around to the south of Rome, a region known as Campania, uh, where Naples is today. And there, Hannibal rips through some of Rome's richest farmland, burning and pillaging, just trying to provoke Fabius into fighting. Now, Fabius, he doesn't rise to the bait. He's set in his ways. He's determined to, to try to you know, eke out a, 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 a slow war of attrition here with Hannibal. Uh, so he sends out skirmishing parties to harass Hannibal a bit here and there, but he avoids a, po- a proper pitched battle at all costs. Now, this was, I guess, effective if you look at it in the sense that Rome didn't lose any battles while they were doing this, but uh, people in Rome, they didn't like it at all. They see it as very cowardly, and Fabius isn't a particularly popular bloke before very long at all. However, as the weeks and the months pass, Hannibal has to find a place to spend the winter, as he's, uh, he's absolutely brutalised Campania, and he doesn't think it's a good idea to stay, stay in this region that he's kind of burnt to the ground. So he posts up in Apulia, uh, on the, uh, just on the stiletto part of Italy's boot there, and uh, he rests his soldiers there through the colder months. Now, Fabius' War of Attrition, uh, it has, well, it's difficult to say if it's failed or if it's succeeded. It, it, it succeeded in the sense that Hannibal didn't really win very many battles during this stage, and Rome didn't lose very many, but it kind of failed in the sense that it didn't really stop Hannibal from advancing his uh, you know his campaign on the Italian peninsula particularly meaningful so meaningfully so Fabius very unpopular at this stage he's chucked out on his ass and uh, Hannibal is still alive and kicking and, and, and Fabius he's made to look like a bit of a goose for the for the way that he's uh, he's tried to manage his business so as a result in uh, in early 216 uh, two blokes named Gaius Terentius Varro and Lucius Aemilius Polus, right? They are appointed consuls. When the spring comes, however, Hannibal, uh, he's up and about straight away. The first thing he does, uh, first thing he does as soon as he gets his armies back together once the weather uh, starts get, getting a bit warmer, is he captures a huge supply depot in Cannae. This is bad news for the Romans. Critically important strategic resource, this, this, this supply depot, is, as it, uh, is more or less a command post for the surrounding area, as well as obviously being full of very important supplies. But in fairness to the Romans, they actually, they've not been curled up having a sook throughout the winter. They've been raising troops throughout this entire period. They've been raising troops and as a result, have, have, have pulled together a truly staggering army. Over 
85,000 soldiers are ready to be deployed by Rome here uh, and, and, and these two consuls. Uh, and after hearing about Hannibal mucking about in Cannae, they get sent off to deal with it. Obviously, they didn't know they were walking into the, one of the biggest and most crushing defeats that the world would ever see, having a great time as they head southeast towards Rome looking for Hannibal. But uh, that, is, that is what is on the agenda here for these Roman troops, uh, unfortunately for them. So after finding him, the Romans, they set up camp and they make preparations for battle. Hannibal, he sent off some skirmishes to stir up some trouble. Again, this is all on the outskirts of Cannae. But uh, Varro was, uh, the consul in charge, Varro was uh, was able to muster defence very, very easily and see them off. Now, apparently, this filled Varro with overconfidence. And despite the other consul, Paulus, saying that they should be more cautious, Varro goes, no, mate, listen, I reckon this one is in the bag. The way it used to work is these two consuls would actually exchange command each day. So one day Varro would be in charge and one day Paulus would be in charge. And it was a way of sort of checking the power of each other, which the Roman Republic, even though it descended into the Roman Empire, you know, a couple of, you know, 150 years later, whatever else, it, there were a lot of checks and balances on power. And then Julius Caesar came and kind of ruined that whole deal. But anyway, that's the way that it was back then. And uh, at this stage, Varro, as I say, full to the brim with overconfidence, Paulus advising them to be a little bit more cautious. But Varro goes, no, bugger it. No, we're going we're to get it done here. The reason Polus is worried is because uh, the Carthaginian have uh, enormously superior cavalry. They have almost twice as many horsemen as the Romans. Even though the Romans have twice as many twice as many foot soldiers, they've got twice as much infantry, Polus is still very worried about the superior of the Carthaginian cavalry. And this proves to be uh, very important, as we'll find out. Nonetheless, the armies continue to harass each other for a couple of days from their respective camps. They send off small parties to mess with the opposing foragers and water bearers and all that sort of stuff. But after two days, that enough, the armies are ready and actually quite impatient for this battle to take place. So Hannibal, once again, he has picked the time and the place for this battle, and he's already enjoying a few tactical advantages. First of all, the Romans are approaching from the west, and so they have the morning sun in their eyes as they march eastward. Secondly, the wind is blowing from the east, and so any of the, any of the dust that's kicked up in the battle will blow towards the Romans and away from the Carthaginians, which is perfect. And this, the other thing, the final thing, Hannibal very, very deliberately picks a day to fight when Varro is in charge because he knows that Varro is the impetuous, rash, and incautious of the two out of Varro and Polis, of Polis there. So very, very important there that, uh, that, uh, that uh, Hannibal ends up fighting against Varro. Anyway, despite all this, the Roman army, this enormous army, they drop into formation, and really, it is a sight to be seen. More than 85,000 troops ready themselves for battle on the Roman side. And while Hannibal still has 50,000 troops of his own, you know, more than a few Carthaginians are a bit worried about how things are going to go. And, and this is where a very interesting anecdote uh, emerges from this from this exact moment in history here, which was recorded apparently. Very, very interesting indeed, because what happened, as, as this was all happening, a Carthaginian officer, a bloke named Gisco, he comes up to Hannibal, makes a very anxious comment, makes an anxious comment to Hannibal about just how bloody big this Roman army is. <clears throat> and Hannibal made a very famous response. He turned to Gisco and he said, another thing that has escaped your notice, Gisco, is even more amazing. That, although there are so many of them, there is not one amongst them called Gisco. And this went to show that Hannibal was so chilled out about the battle. He's there cracking jokes and, and having a laugh. He's so relaxed that, that apparently all the people around him, they start laughing and they, they start relaxing themselves and did a lot to ready his officers who were going to put into motion this critical plan, that, that this battle plan that, that Hannibal had drawn up in facing this massive Roman army. Because believe, believe me, Hannibal is very prepared for this. He has drawn up what is still studied today as a masterstroke of military tactics. So this is what happened. 
The Romans have formed themselves into their, the normal tight-knit formations, great big columns of troop, uh, troops arranged in straight lines, as was the norm. Hannibal, on the other hand, he arranges his troops wildly differently. So first of all, he, he does put his cavalry on the flanks, which is normal enough, but uh, he's, got his, you know, he's got his elite cavalry units on the left flank to fight the best Roman cavalry, his other, other on the right flank to you know, harass the other, the other flanks defended by the cavalry there. But rather than the traditional move of putting all of your best troops in the centre of your formation, Hannibal puts all of his weakest troops in the middle. And what's more, instead of them all having, having them all lined up in a straight line, he has his troops lined up in a V formation with the point of the V where his weakest troops are pointed at the oncoming Romans. This means that the, the line of Romans as they march, right, from, from, from west to east, as they march towards the, uh, uh, the Carthaginians, they're going to come across these, the weakest soldiers that, that, that Hannibal has right in the centre of this V thing like this. It is, it is baffling. It is perplexing. It, it, it makes no sense. It all seems like madness. As a weak centre will allow your enemy to get right into the middle of your formation and control the battle. But Hannibal, He's obviously got something up his sleeve here because guess where he is? He positions himself right in the middle of the action, right there with all of these weaker troops, front and centre, where the battle lines will first meet once the Romans arrive. So the troops racing towards each other, battle is about to begin. But before this, before the infantry get to one another, the Carthaginian cavalry on the left flank has already rushed forward and taken the fight to the Roman cavalry there in the south. Now, this this is a rout. It's it's unbelievable how, before the hand-to-hand fighting has even, has even started, the, the, the Carthaginian cavalry has wrecked the Roman cavalry and they are fleeing at top speed. This is pretty bad for the Romans as this heavy, heavy cavalry now sweeps around behind the advancing Roman troops to the west where they've just marched and joins the other cavalry fighting on the right flank. So now they're fighting two to one, effectively. The cavalry are fighting two to one up in the north on the, on the, on the, uh, on the right flank. So again, before the hand-to-hand fighting begins in the field, the Roman cavalry has eff- effectively already been defeated. This is, this, is, this is bad news for the Romans. Despite this, however, the Roman infantry, they march on towards the assembled Carthaginians and meet these, uh, meets these uh, um, to put it diplomatically, expendable troops that, uh, that Hannibal has, uh, has at the point of this V formation. And the Romans, they start cutting through them like butter. They advance very, very quickly. Despite the sun and the dust in their eyes, it looks like things are going very well for the Romans when it comes to the infantry. But this is exactly what Hannibal wanted. Because he himself is front and centre and he oversees a disciplined and organised retreat of these weaker troops after they, you know, they're, being, they're, they're taking losses, they're being defeated by the, by the, the infantry of, of the Romans. So they slowly but surely, step by step, very, very slowly indeed, have a very ordered and very defensive r- retreat or, or withdrawal back into this V formation. Now, he, th- this is obviously a ruse. Obviously, Hannibal is up to something here, but the Romans, they fall for this like absolute turkeys. Hannibal, he's having the troops withdraw slowly, defensively. The Romans rush in and become tightly compacted as this V-shape slowly flattens out and then starts to bulge the other way. So now you've got a sort of a concave shape rather than a convex shape, a concave shape that the uh, that the Carthaginians are making with the Romans in a, in a sort of a wedge in between them. The Romans have inadvertently formed themselves into this wedge. They're now the ones in the V-shape pointing the other way. And it's at that point that Hannibal gives the order for the infantry on either edge of the battle line, the people who were originally on the the opposite ends of his V-shape, to start to encircle the Romans. Remember, there is no cavalry to protect the Roman flanks. They've all been driven off. And the Carthaginian cavalry is now able to move right back behind the Romans and entraps them 
completely. The Romans are encircled by this pincer movement, one of the first times it had ever been used in the Western world and have nowhere to go. To the north and the south are Hannibal's fresh infantry units that have raced around on the flanks that are undefended by cal- no cavalry there. Um, and to the west is the Carthaginian cavalry against, you know, the, the Romans have no, the Roman infantry has no chance against this, uh, this Carthaginian cavalry. And to the east is the infantry that has been slowly withdrawing to trap the Romans, who are now so tightly packed, so tightly encircled within the Carthaginians, that they can't even swing their swords. They can't even actually effectively fight the Carthaginians, and they've got nowhere to escape. The Carthaginians close in on them, they cut them down mercilessly, and they secure a victory of total annihilation. According to the contemporary historian Livy, Almost 50,000 Roman soldiers were killed and almost 20,000 were captured. The death toll at the Battle of Cannae rivals a day's fighting at the Battle of the Somme. And the Battle of Cannae is still one of the bloodiest battles in human history. I really can't overstate the importance of the Battle of Cannae, not, not just not at the time as part of the Second Punic War, not just as that, but, but its legacy in history, even today, it's still studied to this very day, modern, modern day times, it is still studied in military academies around the world as a battle which changed the shape of military tactics forever. It was studied by everyone from Frederick the Great to Dwight D. Eisenhower. So Eisenhower, you probably know, Supreme Commander of the Allies in, uh, in the Second World War, he once said... Every ground commander seeks the battle of annihilation. So far as conditions permit, he tries to duplicate in modern war the classic example of Cannae. So this battle's legacy is so enduring, it's so monumental, that into the 20th and 21st century, it is still informing the way that we fight our wars. And, and at the time, its impact at the time was staggering. A bunch of Roman-controlled areas on the Italian peninsula immediately defected over to Hannibal, strengthening his position enormously, and even King Philip V of Macedon and King Hieronymus of Syracuse threw their weight behind Hannibal. Uh, After it defected to him, Hannibal set himself up in Capua, the second largest city on the Italian peninsula, after Rome, of course. Um, And to keep people on side back in Carthage, too, he gathered up all the signet rings of all the nobles that had been killed at Cannae and uh, sent them back to the Carthaginian Senate, where they were poured out over the floor in in front of the sceptical senators there. But uh, in in Rome, it was total chaos, total chaos. When so many people, so many people had been killed at the Battle of Cannae, that almost everyone in the city had either a family member or a friend who was lost. Hannibal had just utterly annihilated the largest Roman army ever assembled. In in fact, in, three, in just three years of fighting, Hannibal had 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 killed a full twenty percent of the adult male population of Rome. That just through fighting Hannibal, 150,000 Romans had died. So as a result, as you might expect, Hannibal became this hugely scary figure in Roman culture. Romans were terrified of him. It was He became this, this mythical arch-villain to the Roman Republic. And they were so devastated, so devastated by, this, by, by these losses, especially at Cannae, that they declared a national day of mourning and actually went back to human sacrifice. They they buried people alive and, and abandoned a baby in the Adriatic Sea to you know try to try to appease the gods, which was pretty brutal of them, but that's the way that it went there back in Rome. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately for our mate Hannibal here, the story starts to take a bit of a turn from after after Cannae, because the wind started coming out of his sails at this point. After Cannae, after this enormous victory that he's just won, he knew. 
he couldn't take Rome. Even, even after this victory, he knew that he still couldn't capture Rome. He didn't have the soldiers, he didn't have the equipment, he didn't have the supplies, and he didn't have the siege weapons. This was the most important thing. I mean, Cannae still cost him thousands of troops. Thousands of, of, of Carthaginian troops still died at Cannae, and they were, they were you know, they'd they were tired and, and and worn out, and and even after this massive victory, they still weren't in a position to press on towards the capital. To take Rome, he would have needed to fight a long and difficult battle in, in the heart of Roman power, where you know he could have been trapped or encircled himself, and things would have gone from you know from good to terrible very very quickly. And uh, as a result of this, interestingly, Hannibal's chief cavalry commander, a bloke named Mahabal, uh, famously commented to Hannibal. He said, "You know how to conquer, Hannibal." but you do not know how to make use of your victory. That, 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 I think that's unfair criticism because Hannibal knew that he wasn't in a position to take Rome, but all the same, all the momentum that, that and, and, and the, you know, the prestige, I guess, that he gained from, from fighting the Battle of Cannae didn't do Hannibal a lot of good in the long run because it taught Romans, finally, at long last, it taught them the lesson that they couldn't possibly hope to stand against Hannibal on the battlefield. And instead, they went back to what old mate Fabius had taught them. Rather than fight him openly, the Romans did everything that they could to wear Hannibal down. Instead, disrupting his supplies, harassing troops with small skirmish forces, and, and just grinding down his momentum as much as they, you know, much as was possible. And this worked. It worked, believe it or not, over a very long period of time, over years and years, it finally worked. Once the proud Roman Republic had been sufficiently humbled by Hannibal, they realised that there was just no other option other than this, this cowardly Fabian strategy. And slowly but surely, the Romans turned the tide in this glacial war of attrition here. And as a result... Uh, Hannibal's position steadily grew worse and worse and worse. After this, you know, massively explosive entry into Roman territory and three devastating years of victory after victory after victory, Hannibal slowly ran out of steam. He didn't receive very much support from anyone. Unfortunately, his allies in Macedon and Syracuse didn't do much. His newly, newly defected Italian allies didn't do much. And even the people back in Carthage, where the peace party was, you know, really sort of pulling the rug out from under uh, under Hannibal as he tried to get it done in the Italian peninsula. He, he just didn't get any support. He, he didn't get reinforcements. He didn't get money. He didn't get much help at all. And as the years passed and the Romans continued to refuse to meet him in battle, Hannibal was reduced to raiding and pillaging and and, and burning throughout the south of the Italian peninsula, all, all to very little effect. I mean, he did, look, let's be fair, he, he won a few notable victories and destroyed a, you know, a few more Roman armies here and there, destroyed an army of 16,000 in the Battle of Salaris of, uh, in, in, 12, in 212, and uh, 18,000 more at the Battle of Hedonia in the same year. The problem was, however, that when he left areas behind in control of a lieutenant, the Romans would quickly move in to take them back. He lost Capua in 211 and, and then Tarentum in 209. In, in this way, he, he de- delegated power to uh, to those underneath him and and they failed. They failed to hold on to, 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 to what he built. And uh, Hannibal never lost a battle himself. He never lost any battles against the Romans, uh, but his, uh, his force was stretched increasingly thin as his subordinates did they lost heaps of battles and uh, notably his his brother Hasdrubal who was killed in the battle of the Metaurus in in 207 but the Romans, despite avoiding meeting Hannibal in pitched battles, uh, they did plenty of fighting elsewhere. They invaded Iberia in 209, and they drove the Carthaginians out completely from the Iberian Peninsula uh, over the next three years. And they also worked on, on recapturing all the territory and cities that had been lost to or, or defected to Hannibal as he went around desperately trying to keep it all together. Again, avoiding a, a pitched battle with him at all costs. They did not want to fight him directly. So ultimately... Without too many, you know, many more options here, poor old Hannibal, he has to withdraw. He withdraws to Calabria, where he ultimately received a very grisly message from the Romans. They they transported Hasdrubal's head all the way from the Mataro River near San Marino, all the way down to Calabria, a, draw, a journey of six or 700 kilometres, just to chuck it over the walls of Hannibal's camp. Pretty bloody brutal way to, yeah, 
tell someone you're not <laughs> to send a message, tell someone you're not mucking around. But that's the way that it went there. And uh, ultimately, Hannibal was never able to find that that final decisive clinching victory that would that would decide the fate of the war. And as a result, the stalemate kind of dragged on and on and on. It wasn't really even a stalemate because it was it, the longer it went on, the more it favoured Rome here. A lot of this, as I said, was due to the fact that support for the war back in Carthage had just basically evaporated. The peace party was back in charge of things, refused to send reinforcements and didn't and didn't uh, back Hannibal up at all. And uh, as a result, things going from good to better to even better for the Romans, uh, the war finally took a turn in 203. Uh, enough was enough. Rome had actually improved its position to the point that in, uh, that in 204, the year beforehand, uh, it could afford to send an invasion force to Carthage itself. And so in 203, Hannibal was called back to Africa by the Carthaginian Senate uh, to defend Carthage. So he sailed back across the Mediterranean after 15 years of campaigning against the Romans, ready to, to defend his, uh, his homeland, without very much to show for it. Unfortunately, he didn't, you know, he after after one of the most incredible campaigns for the first couple of years, at least, with the Battle of Canaan, whatever else happened in the first couple of years, Hannibal's, Hannibal's conquest of, uh, of the Italian peninsula of Rome was, was a bit of a non-event by the end of it, and he ended, ended up coming back, as I say, to Carthage in 203 with a stack of troops from the Italian peninsula, and... Uh, on top of that, he immediately raised levies after getting back to Carthage and, and prepared for a full-scale defensive war against the Romans. But by this stage, the Romans had already been fighting with with a fair bit of success throughout Carthage. Had been besieging cities and and winning decisive victories, uh, you know, here, there, and everywhere. And as a result, and actually in spite of Hannibal's return to defend his homeland, the Carthaginians uh, are ready to, to, to negotiate peace. They've had enough uh, of fighting this invading Roman army, and they're ready to end this Second Punic War as it is. So this means that in 202 BCE, Hannibal is actually sent to a peace conference where he meets the commander, the general, who has been responsible for winning all of these battles in Carthage so far. And guess who it was? Guess who it was? If you remember, if we go back to the Battle of Trebia, I mentioned... Uh, Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus, the son who had rescued his dad during the Battle of Trebia, it was none other than him. Scipio Africanus was now leading the Roman conquest of Carthage. So he, after being, you know, a young 18-year-old boy dragging his, his, his father off the battlefield there years and years before uh, in, a, in a battle against Hannibal, he was now here getting his own back against the Carth Carthaginians years and years later. So both of these men, they turn up to the, the peace conference and they sit down together and uh, Scipio offers Hannibal the, the relatively generous Roman peace deal. It involves the loss of all the territories outside of Africa, which is effectively already a done deal, seeing as they've been pushed out of Sicily and out of uh, you know out of Iberia and everywhere else that they um, they that they are the Carthaginians had conquered the Romans had kind of reconquered it back. So th this wasn't really a term; it was just a, sort of a fait accompli at this stage. But uh, uh, on top of that, <clears throat> uh, Carthage had to reduce its size uh, the, uh, the size of its fleet enormously, and that also pay a bunch of cash, uh, war indemnity. So this was. Relatively lenient, it, it, it has to be said. Uh, Rome kind of had Carthage over a barrel at this stage, but uh, they were offering a pretty generous peace settlement. But unfortunately, despite both men expressing their personal admiration for each other, the negotiations uh, ended up falling apart. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that Hannibal and the Carthaginians broke the peace treaty of the First Punic War by att attacking Saguntum way back in 219 BCE, uh, 17 years ago. So the Romans paint the Carthaginians as being untrustworthy, as being dishonourable because they broke that peace treaty because of all the uh, ambushes and ambuscades and all these other sort of uh, underhanded tactics that uh, that Hannibal had been using during the Second Punic War and the, the peace negotiations break down. As a result, the Second Punic War continues. Uh, Scipio Africanus still at the helm of the Roman effort 
And uh, Scipio and Hannibal, they actually finally meet once again. They meet again in battle in 202 BCE at the Battle of Zama. Now, this battle was incredibly close and incredibly hard fought. The 35,000 Romans went up against 40,000 Carthaginians. And Scipio and Hannibal, they met before the battle with a, with a last-ditch effort to secure peace, but this also failed and the uh, the generals had to get ready to fight. So Hannibal had 80 war elephants uh, and he used these to open the battle, but the Romans, by now, they're ready for this. They're ready to, to, to take on these war elephants. Firstly, they used loud horns to try to frighten the elephants and some of the elephants panicked and turned back to flee, which obviously, as we discussed, terrible damage for the the Carthaginians themselves, crushing and trampling many of the uh, Carthaginian soldiers there. And the ones that didn't flee were dealt with by the Romans very swiftly. They'd arranged their troops quite loosely this time, uh, loosely enough to be able to avoid the elephants who charged right through the Roman columns without having done, doing much damage. And at this point, they were trapped, trapped at the Roman rear. The, the Roman ranks closed on them and they were dealt with very, very easily after being so uh, you know horrendously outnumbered. And from this point, the Romans used their superior cavalry to fight off the Carthaginian cavalry, while the infantry fought a very close contest that didn't favour either side. It really could have gone you know, either way. And, and at one point, things were looking very good, in fact, for, uh, for Hannibal and, and his infantry there. But finally, the Roman cavalry returned from, uh, from driving off the Carthaginian cavalry, rallied the Roman infantry, and uh, with that handed Scipio his victory and Hannibal the first defeat of his entire career. He lost the Battle of Zama in, in very close circumstances. And it has to be said, the Battle of Zama was a critical turning point, not just in the history of, of, of Carthage or of Rome or of, of, of you know, the Punic War and whatever else. It was a turning point in the history of the world, even if it broadly isn't recognised as one here. Because with the defeat of Hannibal and therefore, by proxy, Carthage, the Romans were able to enforce crippling and brutal peace terms on the Carthaginians after the, you know, a more or less unconditional surrender, you know, as a result of this, of, of, of this, as a result of this battle here. So they were forced to reduce their navy to just ten ships, just ten ships they're allowed to have. They had to pay three hundred tons of silver to Rome, and they were forbidden from engaging in wars without Roman permission, giving rise to the term Carthaginian peace when talking about peace conditions that are particularly harsh. Now, with Carthage defeated like this, however, there was very little now that could stand in the way of the total supremacy of the Roman Republic and, of course, later empire in the Mediterranean. The Roman victory at the end of the Second Punic War and, and the, at the Battle of Zama was the point at which Rome was virtually uncontested as the major power in the region. And from there, it, it obviously went on to forge one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And it all hinged on Hannibal's defeat at the Battle of Zama. And if he had won, and if the, if, if the Carthaginians had gone on to, to, to be victorious in the Second Punic War and had gone on to be you know, a, a, a meaningful check on the power and the rise of the Roman Republic, the Roman Empire, who knows how things would have gone, but that isn't the way that it went. As for Carthage, I mean, Carthage didn't last very much longer, unfortunately. It, was, it ended up being totally destroyed by the Romans about 50 years later during the Third Punic War. Carthage was under constant attack now after, after the Romans you know, forced them to sign this peace treaty and, and, and sail back to the Italian peninsula. Carthage is, is effectively in ruins and they try to rebuild themselves. They do a very good job of this, but um, they're under constant attack from from the neighbouring Numidians, and uh, they can't defend themselves properly because of this, the terms of the of the Roman peace treaty. They can't go to war without Roman permission, and Rome just stands by and does nothing while the Numidians continue to attack them. And when Carthage finally goes, well, bugger this, we're going to defend ourselves. We've had enough of this this nonsense here. They when they finally raised an army to fight the Numidians, the Romans finally had a legitimate a legitimate casus belli, a reason to fight. 
and so they invaded Carthage once once more in 146 BC, and this time they burned to the ground. They burned to the ground, salted the earth, and Carthage was destroyed, like completely, utterly, just wiped off the face of the map. It never recovered. It was never, ever a, a thing anymore. Only about 55,000 Carth- Carthaginian people survived at all, and you know many of them were, were sold into slavery, and that was the end of Carthage entirely. But what about Hannibal? I mean, this is years and years after Hannibal. So what happened here? After his defeat at the Battle of Zama, his... Uh, legendary air of invincibility, as you can probably understand, it kind of evaporated for him. And he was he was somewhat disgraced as a general after all this, which is, it's a bit rough considering all, you know, all of his previous achievements. But uh, all the same, he pivoted from a military life to a political political one, and he became a chief magistrate in, in the city of Carthage. And there he campaigned against corruption and embezzlement. I talked about him being a good bloke, and he didn't stop even after he, he stopped, you know, stopped swinging a sword around. He, he still he still fought the good fight, and Carthage was struggling to pay its 300 tons of silver to Rome, and, and he did his best to make sure it happened without any corruption and embezzlement, as I said. But he also campaigned to change the election laws, which uh, ultimately reduced the power of the Carthaginian ruling class and made him a fair few enemies, made him more than a few enemies, I would say, amongst the, uh, the Carthaginian elite, as you, as you can imagine. But nonetheless, Carthage actually did surprisingly well after the Second Punic War. It recovered economically very quickly indeed. And unfortunately, this was one of the things that accelerated its downfall because this made Rome very suspicious and worried, given their fear of Hannibal. And in, in 195, they got in touch with uh, Carthage and they, they started to investigate if, if Hannibal was an enemy of Rome, whether he was getting in touch with uh, you know other people sympathetic to uh, perhaps an anti-Roman cause and, and trying to stir up a rebellion. Not 100% sure if he was doing this, but the Romans certainly certainly thought that he was, and uh, he uh, he caught wind of this and realised that his time was up. He fled into voluntary exile away from Carthage, realising that between all the Carthaginian nobles that he'd pissed off and you know the in, the entire Roman Republic, he probably had enough enemies. So he fled to Tyre and then to Antioch. And then finally, Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And there, he advised Antiochus III, a Greek king, on the best ways to fight the Romans. I mean, talk about bloody hiring an expert consultant. He's the best in the business at this. And he did a bit more fighting himself over the years. Uh, Nothing, you know, nothing too much came of it. Uh, Nothing on the scale of what he'd been up to previously. Although at at one point, this is is a good one, at one point in 190, uh, he was fighting for for Prusius I of of Bithynia against uh, Rome's ally, King Eumenes II of Pergamon. And during one sea engagement, a naval battle here, uh, Hannibal had great big pots filled with venomous snakes and chucked onto the opposing ships. So even as an old man, he's still coming up with brilliant military tactics. And uh, I think it's a great shame that the old snake in a pot trick isn't sort of the foremost aspect of his enduring legacy as, as, as a, a military commander. Anyway, while fighting with Prusius, actually, the Romans intervened on behalf of Eumenes and they, de- they demanded that Prusius hand over Hannibal. Now, Prusius, after having been bullied into submission by the Romans, he decides, well, I better do it, better do what they ask me to do. And uh, as a result of Prusius indicating that he's going to hand Hannibal over to the Romans, Hannibal turns around, gives him a stiff middle finger, and uh, it's thought actually committed suicide rather than fall into Roman's ha- Roman hands. He, he, he took the poison, apparently, that he carried around with him for years uh, in a ring. This isn't, uh, this isn't the only story about Hannibal's death. There's another one, another story about him nicking himself on an unsheathed sword by getting onto a horse and having it get infected and dying of the fever. In any case, we don't know for 100% why he died or how he died, but we do know that he died in, in the year 181 or 182, roughly around then, and, uh, you know, he died before falling in, into the hands uh, 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 of the Romans. Now, that was the end of one of the greatest military minds that the world has ever seen. Hannibal Barker altered the course of world history and is today remembered 
as a legendary figure in military history, forever changing the ways that wars and battles are fought. Before Hannibal, wars were broadly fought in a very straightforward way. You'd gather up your troops, you'd line them up, and you'd smash them into the opposing army, who would, broadly speaking, have done exactly the same as you, and the last bloke standing wins. But after Hannibal, people are trying to start to win wars in ways that don't involve direct battle. Ambushes, disrupting supplies and communications, repositioning entire armies for better tactical positions, avoiding battles that would be costly, pinning opponents without attacking. The list goes on. Hannibal inspired uh, thousands of years of military innovation, and he changed the ways that wars are fought. And his fundamental principles uh, on warfare are still learned from today, even and especially, especially his victory at Cannae. In the words of General Norman Schwarzkopf, the technology of war may change, the sophistication of weapons certainly changes, but those same principles of war that applied to the days of Hannibal apply today. Hannibal didn't have a reputation for cruelty or brutality. He never suffered a revolt or a rebellion within his own troops, even after 15 years of foreign campaigning. The Romans hated and feared him, but they still erected statues of him in their city out of a grudging respect and, and I suppose a reminder that they had finally defeated such a legendary enemy eventually. And I, I, I suppose I should say, however, despite his tactical brilliance, despite his honourable conduct throughout decades of fighting and despite his lofty position as a legend, a legend of, of military history, he, he, he did seem to have one pretty huge fault here, a staggeringly self-assured arrogance. I want to finish today's episode by reading you an account written by the contemporary historian Appian of a meeting between Scipio and Hannibal years and years later when Hannibal was in Ephesus uh, with uh, Antiochus III advising him on the best ways to fight the Romans. It reads, It is said that at one of the meetings in the gymnasium, Scipio and Hannibal had a conversation on the subject of generalship in the presence of a number of bystanders, and that Scipio asked Hannibal whom he considered the greatest general, to which the latter replied, Alexander of Macedonia. To this, Scipio assented, since he had also yielded in the first place to Alexander. Then he asked Hannibal whom he placed next, and he replied, Pyrrhus of Epirus, because he considered boldness the first qualification of a general. For it would not be possible, he said, to find two kings more enterprising than these. Scipio was rather nettled by this, but nevertheless he asked Hannibal to whom he would give the third place, expecting that at least the third would be assigned to him. But Hannibal replied, To myself. For when I was a young man, I conquered Hispania and crossed the Alps with an army, the first after Hercules. As Scipio saw that he was likely to prolong his self-laudation, he said, laughing, Where would you place yourself, Hannibal, if you had not been defeated by me? Hannibal, now perceiving his jealousy, replied, In that case, I should have put myself before Alexander. Thus Hannibal continued in his self-laudation, but flattered Scipio in an indirect manner by suggesting that he had conquered one who was the superior of Alexander. At the end of this conversation, Hannibal invited Scipio to be his guest, and Scipio replied that he would be so gladly if Hannibal were not living with Antiochus, who was held in suspicion by the Romans. Thus did they, in a manner worthy of great commanders, cast aside their enmity at the end of their wars. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That, at long last, is the end 
of the story of Hannibal Barker. Big thank you to Derek Carlson for suggesting this as a topic uh, for the podcast. And if you'd like to follow in his exalted footsteps, please do. Halfasthistory.net is your place to go for not only all the old episodes and ways to subscribe to the show and, of course, the Patreon uh, that I, I manage. Thanks so much to all the loyal Patreon members out there. But there's a contact form. You can get in touch with me if you've got an idea for an episode. And I've got a couple more to churn through in the coming weeks, so I'm hoping to get across a few more listener suggestions, listener submissions uh, before too much longer. But that is that for this week. I am buggered after that <laughs> that effort. That was a, a long and winding road, but a very, very interesting story, and I'm very, very glad to have brought it to people uh, listening uh, around the world. Anyway, that's that for this week. Going to close things out as usual, as ever, with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Abu Ben Adham has a question about the Punic War. Very good one, too. The Third Punic War was a bit of a disappointment. When's the fourth one scheduled to take place? 